Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. So good to be here with you all today. My name is Matthew, and if we haven't met, if you're new here, welcome. Really glad that you've joined us this morning. Um, I'm the pastor here, and we should try to meet afterwards and say hey to one another. I'd like to, I'd like to get to know you a bit. A uh, couple of things I just want to draw your attention to before we jump into this morning's text. Um, first of all, I uh, want to just thank uh, Caleb and Hartley, Janie, for being here. They are some of the worship leaders that 10,000 Fathers uh, uh, have, have loaned to us. And um, yeah, and um, it's been wonderful working with them. They just, 10,000 Fathers is this worship school in, in Snellville. And they raise up worship uh, leaders to become worship pastors. That's their vision, to become people who are actually pastoring people in, in this thing that we do every week when we sing songs to God. And um, it's a really beautiful thing that they're, that they're doing. And anyway, Caleb and Janie come, uh, Caleb and Hartley uh, come out of uh, Grace Midtown, and, but they're here today on the east side, instead of the mid side. And so it's awesome having them with us. Uh, if you are not a member and you weren't here last week, you may not have heard, but we've uh, hired a worship pastor, Micah Dalton, and that's what he looks like. Uh, he's going to be um, joining us in January on the 5th, and we're super excited about it. He's in East Atlanta, and he's a person with a huge heart for our city, for worship, for the church, and we're very excited that he's joining our team, he and his wife, and their two little girls. Um, and so you can be praying for them as they transition out of one role and into another, uh, but we are very eager to have them join us. We are going to be uh, looking at the book of Daniel today, and, and it's Daniel chapter 6. If you want to start turning there, while you turn there, I want to, I want to draw your attention to, the, to where we are. We are in the church calendar on the last Sunday of the year. And I know we're not on the last Sunday of the year in the real calendar, the one that we all live by, but the church lives by a different time. It always has because it's understood as being a people who are keeping, um, I, we have a different thing that's running, our, running us. And so we, um, we begin next week with Advent, which is our New Year's Day. And today we end the year with Christ the King Sunday. And so next year, next week is going to be this whole new season, which is going to be uh, a four-week preparation season for, this, for Christmas. Now, while the church is preparing for Christmas, the rest of the world is celebrating Christmas or holidays or sentimentality or whatever it is that we celebrate as a people. But we celebrate something for, you know, two months, basically leading up to December 25th, and then just put it back in closets as quickly as possible because we're so tired and glutted by the whole thing. And the church instead has chosen for a long time, and this is a very Anglican thing to do, to keep a season of Advent, a season of preparation, where we actually abstain from some of these things, where we choose to sort of delay some of the things that ever, other one, everyone else is rushing into. And so some people even don't put a tree out till Christmas, and then they keep it up for the 12 days, or they don't listen to a lot of Christmas music. You know, you can listen to any of the Advent songs, so those are all the like the O comes, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, thou long expected. So if it's got an O come in it and it doesn't, isn't followed by all you faithful, you're good. But everything else is kind of off limits as far as Christmas music. Anyway, like I, th- I think there's something really beneficial for that and keeping that practice. And mostly because as we enter into a season of feasting, if we just walk into a season of feasting already fully, you know, just glutted, uh, we're not actually able to feast. We're, we're not able to actually celebrate that God has come in this way. And, and yet I recognize there's tremendous pressure to try to keep some sort of a season. And you're going to have tons of things you go to. And everywhere you go, there's going to be candy canes. And that's the world we live in. And so it's, it's, not, it's not legalism. It's just opportunity. I think the bigger, the bigger thing about Advent, and this is why I'm telling you this today, um, 
so that you can begin to think about this even as you prepare uh, for Advent with us next week. But the spirit of Advent is, is actually what the, the Orthodox have called for a long time the, great, uh, the bright sadness. And the bright sadness is a perfect, I think, just like this is, what, this is what it is. It's bright. It's full of light. It's full of hope. Christ the King is coming. He's coming again. And yet it's sad because we still inhabit a world that's waiting. We still live in a world that is not yet. And that's actually what the posture of Advent is. It's living fully in this. Things are happening all around us and even to us that shouldn't be happening. We live in a world that is different from the one we were made for, and we know it in our bones. You know, we, we know it all the way to the bottom, that this isn't the world we're made for. And I don't mean this planet. This planet is what you're made for. You're going to live in it for a billion years. We're going to be raised people on it. I mean like the world, the systems and the structures that undergird it, the things that, that actually control the experience of our life and culture. There's something wrong with it. It's, it's broken and vicious and divisive and anxious. And it's not the world you're meant to live in. And Advent is a season where we, we stir up the reminder of that, which can be dangerous work. To intentionally expose yourself to pain and suffering around you, not to hide ourselves from it. And there's no season where it's easier to hide yourself from these things because you can always have another cup of eggnog and you can just turn Bing Crosby up a little louder. And yet the, the invitation of Advent for you and me is to be a people who hold this sort of simultaneous posture that Paul describes this way in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So we are people who are deeply in touch with the pain going on around us and in our own hearts, and we do not hide ourselves from it, and yet we rejoice fully in a way that no one else can because our rejoicing does not come from circumstances, but it comes from a power that's larger and greater than the circumstances. It does not come from what an imminent end might be, but it comes from an ultimate end that we look to. And so we are able to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And so I say this to you as a person on the brink of this season, and you're just going to have so many opportunities to not keep it. And so just maybe try to find little ways that you can with us, little ways that you can sort of maybe say no to some things, but more intentionally, like I, for me, it's just going to mean like intentionally reading stories and putting myself in places that are going to be uncomfortable because this is a world that sits in waiting. We are a world that longs for God to split the skies again and come to us. Advent is not just a time where we reenact some sort of Bible story time where like, oh, the people of Israel couldn't wait for the Messiah to come. Like, we are a people who cannot wait for the Messiah to come now. And so we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because that is what our hope is in. Our hope is not in some whatever it is, graduation that comes around or a house that's going to close or some romantic relationship starting up or a marriage that's going to happen in 2020 or a new election that's going to happen in November. We do not sing, O come, O come, November 3rd, 2020. We have a much deeper thing that we're holding on to as a people. Amen? So I invite you to consider how you might do that, what that might mean for you. Uh, I'm, I just got this book this week. It's, it's, uh, it's by Fleming Rutledge, who's an Episcopalian uh, priest, and um, it's a collection of her Advent sermons. And honestly, it's, it's a little beefy. It's not for the faint of heart. But if you want to, like, chew your way through something for the next month, I would encourage you to check it out. But she writes this. She says, it might be said of Advent that it is not for the faint of heart. I mean, to grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. This is not the same thing as going to horror films, which are essentially entertainment. Entering into the very worst means giving serious consideration to the most hopeless situations. Entering into the very worst means giving serious consideration to the most hopeless situations. For instance, 
a facility for the most profound cases of developmental disability? What hope is there for a ward full of people who will never sit up, walk, speak, or feed themselves? Tourists go to the site of Auschwitz and take pictures, but who can really imagine the smells and the sounds of the most depraved of all situations? The tourists can always turn away in relief and go to lunch. In Advent, we try to be people who don't do that, who just lean into it. Why? Because we're growing our groaning muscles. We're becoming people who, with the long tradition of God's people, choose to groan and ache for God to come again to us. And then on Christmas, we light candles, we sing songs, we eat huge meals, and we do it because he did, and that is the sign that he will again. And so we are a people of hope, not of grief. All right, that was like the first sermon. We're going to read we're going to read a really long text. It's a very well-known story though. It's Daniel chapter 6. Daniel and the lion's den. How iconic is that? So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, including Daniel. To these the satraps gave account so that the king might suffer no losses. Now soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. And so the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom, but they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. And the men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so the presidents and the satraps conspired and they came to the king and they said, O King Darius, live forever. And all the presidents of the kingdom and the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors, they all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document and the interdict. And although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go into this house, and, which had windows in its upper room open towards Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day and to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and they found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. And then they approached the king and they said concerning the interdict, Oh, king, did you not sign an interdict that anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? The king answered, the thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict that you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. And when the king heard the charges, he was very much distressed. He determined to save Daniel. And until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. And then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, King, know this, O king, 
that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no interdict or ordinance from the king established can be changed. And the king gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then he went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And then at the break of day, the king got up and he hurried to the den of lions. And when he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you faithfully serve been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no wrong. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king gave a command and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of the lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den of lions, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world, May you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, for he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. So, Lord, we uh, are just so grateful as we begin here to look at this story. We are so thankful that you are here and you are moving. Lord, like the wind blowing through a place, we don't have to do anything except maybe to sit still. And so, Lord, we invite you to come. Take this story, this well-known story, and teach us the way of Jesus through it. Teach us what it means, Lord, to live um, as exiles. And God be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so we've been looking at the month, for the month of November, we've been looking at this book of Daniel, this book of prophecy and, and court tales, and um, we've been talking about it in light of how does the church be a faithful presence while they're in an, uh, like a distant land. And you don't have to actually be far away to be in a distant land. I mean, the idea of, of Daniel and of exile, even in the biblical imagination, is that you are just not where you're supposed to be and you know it. It's, it's why we're Advent keepers. We, we're just not where we are supposed to be, and we know it. 
And so how does the church, and the church has always understood this themselves as exiles, how does the church embody that spirit that enables them to be faithful people, to hold on to the true things, to, to ground themselves in what is true in the midst of tremendous pressure, in the midst of uh, a cultural opposition, and, and whatever it is. And the book of Daniel has kind of every week helped us see what, how Daniel and his, his friends managed to do this when they were exiles in Babylon. By chapter 6, they are no longer being ruled by the Babylonians, but the Persians have actually now taken over the, the Babylonians, and so there's been a, a, a pretty significant change of a shift of power. And yet, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when I taught on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into the furnace, you might, uh, you might go like, this is a very similar story. And it is. I mean, it's almost a virtual recapitulation of that story. Same themes, but different specifics. Different empires, but the same basic idea. Pagan rulers say you must worship the gods of the empire or you will suffer punishment. There are conspirators who are really, um, they're, they're co-sharers in power with these faithful Israelites. And they use the faithfulness and the piety and the devotion of the Israelites against them as weapons to get them into uh, trouble. And the faithfulness and the piety of these Israelites is tested when pagan kings decide that for their acts, they must be thrown into a den of lions, into a fiery furnace, into a place of torment and death. But when they go into these places that are meant to be places of destruction, rather than being torn to pieces or burned alive, they are unharmed, unscathed, and they don't even smell like smoke or have the tips of their hair singed or have a single claw mark on them when they are uh, carried out of these things. And the ruler, once Babylonian emperor, now the king of Persia, makes some sort of a formal, universal, geographic declaration. These guys have the real God on their side. Now, you might go, why are these two stories in there? And, and you could say, well, because they both happen. Well, okay, but why are they compiled in there? Because the book of Daniel was most likely put together centuries after these stories supposedly took place. I mean, centuries after. Probably second or third century. And so the writer is doing something on purpose because by now Israel is out of Persia, they're out of Babylon, they're back home, and yet they're conquered again. And they'll just continue to be a conquered people. They will just continue to be conquered on and on and on. And so the question is, is what is the message they're trying to get to this, these conquered people? And it is this. It doesn't matter who is ruling over you. There is someone who is ruling over that person. It doesn't matter who might be sitting on some sort of an earthly throne. There is a throne in heaven that is greater than... The, the throne on this earth, which is why you see again and again in the book of Daniel, this declaration uh, from Daniel, but also from various other peoples, that the sovereign Lord is over the kingdoms of mortals and he gives power to whom he will. The sovereign Lord is over and rules over the kingdoms of mortals. The question we have for today, without just preaching the exact same sermon and idolatry I taught a couple weeks ago, is how does Daniel how does Daniel do this? How does he be the person he is in this setting? How does he not cave to pressure? How does he not give in to fear? How does he do it? Or another way to say it, a way that we would say Trinity, is how does he maintain a non-anxious presence? You know, if you've been here for more than a couple of days, you've heard me talk about Edwin Friedman's book, A Failure of Nerve, which is required reading to be a Trinity person. It's not actually, but it really should be. And it certainly should be required to be an American because in it, he diagnoses the chronic problem that is afflicting all of us. And that's this culture of fear and anxiousness and franticness, which, which sows reactivity and divisiveness and tribalism and vicious rhetoric and all the things that we just are constantly told. If you're going to be a person who's intelligent, you need to get sucked into and swept up into these stories these that are circling all around us of fear and hatred and 
prejudice and, and whatever it is. And the church is invited to stand outside of these things and to be a stable uh, presence. Now, I just want to say really quick, when we talk about uh, chronic anxiety, we are not talking about anxiety disorders. And the reason I say that is because it can, it can make it sound like if you have an anxiety disorder, like it's all in your, it's just like it's a problem for you to just figure out and just like get out of it. Anxiety disorders are real things like depression, like diabetes. You can't just decide you don't have diabetes anymore. You can't just decide you don't have an anxiety disorder anymore. And I'm sure there's probably even people in this room who are afflicted with them. And they're debilitating and terrible. And they're, they're treatable, hard, you know, they're hard. When we talk about chronic anxiety, we are talking about that baseline emotional reflex that's sort of at the, that is, that is only growing in the magnitude of how, how easily it's triggered in us, where I see something and my first response is to overreact, where something happens to me and rather than me like being calm and level-headed and thinking deeply about something and believing the best about another person, I believe the worst, I caricature, I begin to draw battle plans, whatever it is. I protect, I hide, I get my tribe, I find my people, I throw stones. That sort of baseline, general, universal, seemingly universal, emotional trigger reflex that's kind of going on all around us. And that's, that's the chronic anxiety that the church is invited to step out of, to be outside of, and to choose to be a non-anxious, peacemaking, thoughtful, intelligent, worshiping, grounded presence. And how do we do it? How does Daniel do it? I just have two things to say. In the 10 minutes I got left. First, the predictability of Daniel's life with God grounded him. The predictability of his life with God. It's actually the very thing that's used against him. It's leveraged against him as a charge. But the predictability of Daniel's daily practices, it says that he would go into his room, which had windows that faced Jerusalem, and three times a day he'd get on his knees and he would pray to and praise the Lord his God as he had always done. And they knew just where to find him because it's where he always was. Advent is a very hard season to try to be predictable because it is a very busy season. And so I'm, I'm not going to like try to be super unrealistic and say, like, you guys need to right now become wildly different people in how you run your schedule. But one of the reasons that Trinity schedules December the way we do, which is there's a ton of times where you can come to church and be with us, is because we recognize that actually it is a very noisy and, and, and can be a very chaotic time of year. And so come to church with us. Come and pray. Every Tuesday morning, we're here at 7 a.m. and we pray. There's a dozen to two dozen of us that come every single Tuesday morning and pray for the things that are going on in the world and in our hearts and in our church. And if you don't know how to pray, if that environment feels scary to you, I will just tell you that that is the environment where I learned how to pray. That's where you learn how to pray, not by reading books on prayer, not by going to conferences on prayer. You learn how to pray by sitting in circles with people and praying. If you've never done it, and you just come and listen. You don't have to say anything. Just come and listen. We do it every Tuesday morning at 7, every Wednesday during Advent. Jenny just mentioned this, but we're going to do morning prayer from 7 to 7.45. It's liturgical. It's Anglican. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's sacred. We hear it's scripture read. We take communion together. We sing songs. We pray for the things going on all around us. Every Thursday during Advent, there's going to be divine reading workshops, Lectio Divina, in the morning and in the evening with childcare provided for people to come and learn how to engage the Bible imaginatively and contemplatively. Because, we have to, because, because, because if you don't get in your car probably and drive somewhere, you're going to always find something. There's always something to wrap. There's always something to pull out of the oven. There's always something to do. And so we just come, we come together, we gather, and we pray 
The predictability of Daniel's life is what grounded him. It appears that the predictability of his life is what got him in trouble, but I would just say that the, actually the predictability of his life, the rhythms that he lived by, were actually what held him in the midst of his trouble. And the thing that you and I desire, I believe you and I desire this. I'm pretty sure this is universal. I desire to be a mature person. I desire to be a, a non-reactive person. I desire to be a person who's able to like have kind of all chaos going on around me, and yet I'm able to kind of stay on my feet and like think clearly and do the next right thing and help the people around me. Like that's the sort of person I want to be. I don't want to get swept up in maelstroms all the time. Like I want to be a person who's able to like in the middle of that be a solid person. You do not become that person in a moment simply by deciding in that moment. That is a long-built muscle, like an endurance muscle. Probably very few of us, if you haven't run in the last year, could just suddenly go outside and run a 10K right now, if you haven't gone like, on a mile run in the last six months. You, you actually build endurance muscles up over time, daily practices. I know we, we talk about this all the time, and that's because this is so important and so foundational. It's so necessary to our life with God. The way that Daniel lived his life in predictable ways this is what grounded him and kept him together. This is what gave him something to draw from when he needed it. This is the very thing that you and I need to build into our life. And this is not an opportunity for us to beat ourselves up. The Holy Spirit is not moving in this space right now saying, I hope that you're feeling really bad about how you've mismanaged your life up to this point. That's not what he's doing. It's not what the Spirit is up to. It's not what the Spirit's voice sounds like. But there's an opportunity to where you are right now to realize, like, I need to make some changes. I need to recognize where I want to go. And your life is perfectly engineered to get the results you're getting. The way you spend your time and your money, the way that I spend my life, it is perfectly, I mean, I, not intentionally, but it is designed and engineered to get exactly the results that I'm getting. And the things that I struggle with and the immaturity that I still carry around with me, my life is undergirding and supporting and funding all of that the decisions I make on a daily basis. It comes from somewhere. And Daniel just reminds us there's a different way. It's not like, a, oh, look at Daniel, what a great man. It's just like, hey, there's a different way. And remember what C.S. Lewis says. I always love saying this, especially in Decatur. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, if we're going the wrong way down a road, it's the person who turns around first and walks back that's the most progressive. You know, if you want to be progressive, if you want to be a person who's making progress, it's the person who realizes you're going the wrong direction, stops and turns and goes back. That's the progressive thing to do. Not to double down. That's what some of us do. We just double down. It's dumb. It's immature. We've done it since we were kids. Well, I'm just going to do it anyway. But he's like, if you, want to be, if you want to be in a different place, if your life is engineered to get the results you're getting and you don't like the results you're getting, the progressive thing to do is to stop where you are and to turn around, to change, to modify. And Daniel's life shows us that there's actually a different way of living. There's just a different, there's a different rhythm to, to be led by, and it, it makes you a non-anxious person. And then the second thing I want to say is that uh, non-anxiousness comes from a certainty in an ultimate but not an imminent outcome. It comes from certainty in an ultimate but not the imminent outcome. Um, today is Christ the King Sunday, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> that probably means not a whole lot to you, but it is the capstone on the church here. It is the last word the church speaks to itself and to the, word, to the world, and it is this word. Jesus is king. He is king right now. This is almost certainly why Kanye timed the release of his album under the same title to, to, to just very recently so we could have a soundtrack for this Sunday. He, 
Kanye is a, he's a deeply liturgical person, and he wants you and me to know, or maybe the church wants us to know, or maybe the Holy Spirit wants us to know, that Christ is king, not in some distant future, not in some distant land, but right now, reigning right now over the rulers of this world, over the circumstances of our life. He's king right now, and it's how the church ends the world. It speaks this word of peace over itself and over... The, and over the surrounding world, Jesus is king. This is my father's world, and his son is ruling. And because of that, because of that, I can be a person at peace even in the midst of great adversity. This is the sort of ultimate outcome that we hold on to. When we embrace this good news and we wrap our hearts around it, around this word, it gives peace even in the midst of chaos. In the cultural moment that you and I are living in, the spirit of this age is not peacefulness. It is anxiousness and frantic energy. It is, it, is not, it is not peacefulness. And yet the church is able to stand outside and to weather the storms and to weather whatever it is, to weather the circumstances, because we know, because we know that this is my Father's world and Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. And this is how we end our year and it's how we begin the next year. This Christ the King Sunday serves as the pivot point of the whole year, and I love it so much because I think that if I had it as the pivot point of my life, if I began and ended every day, if I began and ended every week, if I began and ended every conversation, Jesus is King. I'm not the one who's going to move or turn the earth with what's about to happen. I'm only waking up into a thing that's already going on. God has been at work for a long time when I woke up this morning, and so I just, I wake up into that, and I recognize Jesus is ruling, Jesus is King, and so I can I don't have to be afraid, or as Dallas Willard loved to say, this universe, God's universe, is a perfectly safe place for us to be. God's universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be, and that can feel like a trite word because all of us, as we're little kids, learned very early on that this is not a very safe world for us to be in. It's one of the reasons why you developed these survival mechanisms that you have. It's one of the reasons why you react to adversity the way you do or why you get awkward in conversations or why you self-medicate or why you're afraid of taking initiative or whatever it is. It's one of those reasons. You were trained in it because the world is an unsafe place and you and I both know it. We know that this is a dangerous place for us. And yet the church stands in defiance against it and says... It seems, it seems dark. It seems dangerous. The storms feel real. But let me tell you of the ultimate end on the other side, that Jesus is king. And the ultimate end is greater than the imminent. The ultimate end is greater than the immediate thing that's going to come my way. And because of that, I can be a person who feels safe because I know that I'm in good hands. I don't have to give in to the fear. I don't have to give in to the anxiousness. I don't have to. It's very hard. But I can be a person of peace because I am in God's universe and it's a perfectly safe place for me to be. And that was, you know, like this week, I was, I was, I was writing this, this message this week, and of course, God's always working on me throughout I'm studying. And like this week, I, like, I lost the battle to fear a whole bunch. There was a, there was a couple of opportunities early in the week where there was a gap between what I wanted the world to be like that I lived in and what the world was actually like, what I wanted my circumstances to be like and what they actually were like. And I filled that gap with fear, and that fear became hopelessness, and that hopelessness became despair. And maybe some of you today find yourself in that kind of a place. Like, that's the spirit with which you walk in the room today. That actually, it's far easier for you to access hopelessness right now than hope. It's far easier to access anxiousness than peace. And yet the Holy Spirit is saying to us, and I love, I love how the Holy Spirit just leads us through the church. I love being Anglican because one of the ways that the Spirit leads us is through these rhythms and through these patterns. The Holy Spirit is inviting you and me today to be people who understand deeply and who breathe in that there is a voice louder than the thunder. 
there is a rulership greater than the rulers of this world. So my son, Rowan, is um, in a uh, little private Orthodox school. And we have him there. He's the only one of our kids there. But we have him there because it's just it's the right school for him right now. And it's in Grant Park. It's St. John the Wonder Worker. And one of the things they do at this Orthodox school is they teach my seven-year-old boy um, liturgy, which he loves. And, um, but he doesn't. And he, he's learning, he, but he's learning all these prayers. And anyway, um, it's been really cool, and I'm so grateful for this place, and I, I really do. I'm just so grateful for it. Anyway, so um, the, uh, this week, they had a Thanksgiving feast for all the parents to come and hang out with the little kids. And when they did that, they, they, this is so orthodox, they decided to run everyone through a liturgy. So there everyone is, kids and parents, the, the place is packed. And they said, this would be a good time to go through a 20-page liturgy with you. And everyone's like... Or for real? And so they did. My wife came home because I was at Asher's Thanksgiving lunch at his school. Anyway, she came home with this package. Like, look at this thing that we did. But it was so cool. But all the kids had taken different portions of these prayers and they turned them into works of art. And so using the words. And so this is my son Rowan's uh, painting that, or picture that he did. And I want to read to you. We just keep that up there, Jay. I want to read to you um, the, por- the portion of the, of the literature that that comes from. Because it came to me this week like a, like, a, like a hug from God. The liturgy goes like this. The storms of life are not frightening to one in whose heart shines the light of your fire. All around the weather is bad. There is darkness, horror, and the howling wind. But in the soul of such a one, there is peace and light. Christ is there. And the heart sings, Alleluia. And I, you know, we go into this week. This is a stressful week for a lot of people. You're going to have conversations this week that are uncomfortable. This is, a, this is a stressful season. There's a lot of things that are pulling at us. There's a lot of things that are drawing our attention away. The storms of life are not frightening to one whose heart shines the light of your fire. And God's invitation to you and me is to be a people who let that fire in to burn and to ignite and to fill us with hope and to give us vision. If you're able, would you stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.